those of you who don't know him, which probably most of you do, um, from Messiah College, he's a professor um, of history of science, and he's the current vice president of the ASA. Um, so I'll turn it over for your, for your talk. Thank you very much. Can everyone hear me adequately? No. no. So, what we should put this. Oh, okay. Misunderstood. Yeah. Good. Okay. The paper I'm going to read today, uh, along with the PowerPoint images, comes from a larger project that I've been working on for a number of years about religious lives and beliefs of leading liberal Protestant scientists from the Scopes era, uh, from the 1920s. These people, by and large, were modernist Protestants, very, very liberal Protestants. I'll explain a little bit about them in, in, in the, uh, the text itself. Um, it'll be The long version of this will be coming out sometime later this year, maybe in the winter, in a volume uh, edited by Nicholas Rupka uh, from Gertigen um, on the religious, uh, I think it's going to be called um, uh, Great Lives in 20th Century Science and Religion or something to that effect. Um, it's the second edition, actually, of a book uh, with this new essay added and another essay I wrote on Michael Pupin of Columbia being revised a little bit. Uh, for the second edition. To introduce Robert Millikan, let me have you read these two quotations yourselves. Uh, this first one comes from a pamphlet that he wrote, a shirt pocket-sized tract pamphlet in 1923, the discovery of the whole series of which is what my project is really about. So I got into Millikan by reading this pamphlet and others by other scientists of the same period. The pamphlets today are unusually rare. The Millikan is the most common, and there's only about 12 or 13 copies known to exist. Um, so this is, uh, there's many, many others that exist in far fewer numbers. There's 10 of them in all uh, on this series on science and religion. Um, and I've written about that elsewhere. The second passage, which you see here, comes from Millikan's autobiography, written just uh, three years before his death after he had retired as the first important president of Caltech. The form that my essay will take is a narrative of his life and his focusing on his religious life and his religious thought. In the longer version, it's interwoven with the narrative of his scientific discoveries and his career. And Mostly that dimension has been left aside in this shorter version. When Judge John Ralston officially opened the Scopes trial on a hot July morning in 1925, Robert Andrews Millikan was perhaps the most famous scientist in the United States, except for Albert Einstein. Two years later, his visions graced the cover of Time magazine. Two years earlier, he'd been only the second American to receive the Nobel Prize for Physics, worth about $40,000, and he had won it partly for an elegant experiment on the photoelectric effect that confirmed in precise detail an equation proposed by Einstein, although at the time Millikan did not accept the photon theory of light 
upon which Einstein's equation had been based. His careful experimental determination of the quantity of the charge of the electron was also noted by the Nobel Committee. Two years before that, in May 1921, when the most famous woman scientist in the world, Marie Curie, was honored at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, it was Robert Millikan who gave the address. Three months later, Millikan left his tenured professorship at the University of Chicago to become de facto president of the newly renamed California Institute of Technology and director of the newly endowed Norman Bridge Laboratory. Both posts had been created for him at the urging of the two friends you see here in this portrait with Millikan, physical chemist Arthur A. Noyes and astrophysicist George Ederly Hale. Under Millikan's indefatigable and very capable leadership, Caltech would rapidly become a great research university closely allied with the industry and the burgeoning economy of Southern California. As journalists began to devote more attention to Millikan, which he frankly enjoyed immensely, his own extensive activities as a writer for popular magazines only magnified this. According to Marcel LaFollette's survey, of 11 magazines with large circulations in the period from 1910 to 1955, only three other scientists were represented more often than Millikan, either as authors or as the subjects of articles in the magazines she studied. Number one, incidentally, was Thomas Edison. Um, I won't worry about the others right now. In the year following the Scopes trial, he delivered the prestigious Terry Lectures at Yale. And five years after that, the John Calvin McNair Lectures at the University of North Carolina. Millikan remained in the spotlight right up until his death, so much so that many saw him as arrogant and self-centered. And some of his own Caltech faculty sarcastically coined the term Millikan for one one-thousandth of a unit of publicity. <laughs> Caltech students sometimes took a similar view. During a construction project in 1937, excuse me a second, um, one student wrote the graffito, Jesus saves, on the back of a steam shovel, and then another student came along and put underneath it, but Millikan gets credit. His significance as a spokesperson for science and religion derives from the high public visibility that he helped to create, rather than from any particularly prof particular profundity in his utterances. The second child of Congregationalist minister Silas Franklin Millikan and his wife Mary Jane, Mary Jane Andrews, Robert Andrews Millikan was born in Morrison, Illinois on 22nd March, 1868. Two moves and seven years later, the family arrived in Maquoquita, Iowa, where he graduated from high school one of just two boys in a class of 15 students. The Millikan family had strong ties to Oberlin College, a Congregationalist school associated before the Civil War with the abolitionist cause and the free will revivalism of evangelist Charles Grandison Finney. His mother's uncle was a founder. Both of his parents were alumni, and Robert kept the family tradition. When he arrived on campus as a preparatory student, not yet a college student, in the fall of 1886, Oberlin was in the midst of changing its fundamental identity. Moving away 
from an egalitarian evangelical college stressing personal salvation and Christian service, Oberlin was gradually becoming more academically rigorous and stressing individual excellence and open inquiry, and no longer expected that all faculty would necessarily espouse evangelical convictions. Several aspects of Oberlin had not yet changed. It was still strongly committed to racial justice, overwhelmingly Republican and pietist, with frequent prayer meetings, required chapel services, and Bible courses. At the same time, since the 1870s, many students and faculty had cautiously accepted evolution and were increasingly attracted to the new liberal theology of divine eminence that often att attached itself to evolution. Many endorsed the compatibility and complementarity of science and religion, each with competence in its own carefully limited sphere, and some even embraced the consistency of evolution by natural selection with human freedom and moral progress. These ideas featured prominently in an important course called Evidences of Christianity, taught by John Mylott Ellis, a leading abolitionist minister who also taught Greek, philosophy, and rhetoric. According to a student notebook from 1882, eight years before Millikan took the course, Ellis taught that evolution is not atheistic, although it, quote, did put the agency of God a little farther back than the old theory put it, unquote. Nevertheless, Ellis was convinced that miracles can happen, stating that divine power was exerted in the creation, it can be again. Miracles were also important for establishing biblical authority. Overall, Ellis rejected the alleged conflict of science and religion that was so common in the 19th century, arguing instead that Christianity had actually overcome barbarism, fostered liberty, and enabled scientific progress. By affirming the precedence of moral law over physical law, Ellis believed that Christianity leads us to test our science and philosophy by their bearings upon human welfare and the idea that the universe is the effect of the design of a good creator. Clearly, Millikan was influenced by the lively campus conversation about tradition and modernity. Throughout his life, he remained a Republican, a teetotaler, an active churchman, while enthusiastically embracing the complementarity of science and religion. But he understood religion in his adult life in terms of a modernist theology that was much more liberal even than the progressive evangelicalism he had encountered at Oberlin. While he advanced a Christian moral vision for science quite similar to that of Ellis, he decisively rejected the transcendent God of the Bible who works miracles and brings personal salvation through the death of his son. Millikan, in short, accepted the modernist distinction between religion, which remains crucial for the modern world, and traditional theology, which must be discarded. Most details of his personal religious story are unknown, and I have not been able to uncover them. But he was probably a religious modernist for at least several years before his arrival at Caltech in 1921, and perhaps for his whole adult life. The influence of Shaler Matthews, the dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, 
may have been significant in this regard, although anything approaching certainty is elusive. 39, 30, 30 years, nearly 30 years after he left Chicago, Milliken recalled an occasion when Matthews was asked, perhaps by Milliken himself, whether he believed in God, only to elicit the reply, that, my friend, is a question which requires an education rather than an answer. Like Matthews, Milliken wanted a new Christian faith to replace the old, the practical religion of Jesus, without the Jesus of traditional religion. He wanted a God who was wholly imminent within the world and not at all transcendent over it, a God incapable of performing miracles or becoming literally incarnate in Christ. Milliken's conception of the essentials of Christianity, as he's called it, he told readers of a popular magazine right before the stock market crash in October 1929, consisted of just two things. First, in inspiring mankind with the Christ-like ideal, that is, the altruistic ideal of the common good. And second, inspiring mankind to do, rather than merely to think about its duty to act for the common good. The amazing insight of Jesus, he added, consists in having kept himself free from creedal statements, particularly statements that reflected the state of man's knowledge or ignorance of the universe that was characteristic of his times. Yet Jesus' followers, unlike him, have in many instances loaded their various branches of his religion with creedal statements which are full of their own woefully human frailties. Why should our concept of God, in the face of advancing scientific knowledge, be frozen in ancient man-made creeds, he asked. I have myself belonged to two churches, he concluded, both of which were unhampered by a creed of any sort. One of the churches Milliken referred to was the Hyde Park Congregational Church, formerly the University Congregational Church, but now United Church of Hyde Park in Chicago which he joined in October 1897. In his final year in Chicago, Milliken used his Oberlin network to identify candidates for an associate pastor's position at that church. At the time, the senior pastor was ethicist Theodore Gerald Soares, who Milliken would later bring to Caltech, both as a professor and as pastor of his own church in Pasadena. The other church was the neighborhood church in Pasadena, you're seeing as it, it, as it currently appears, it's in a different location than when Milliken was there. Today, it's a Unitarian Universalist congregation. In Milliken's day, when he joined, it was the West Side Congregational Church. When he, when, he, when he arrived in Pasadena, and he bought a home just around the corner. In 1924, that's just three years after he arrived, largely at Milliken's urging, a merger took place with Pasadena's recently founded First Unitarian Church. And the resulting congregation was for many years affiliated with both larger denominations. The significance of this merger for Caltech's chief, chief executive must not be overlooked. Caltech was originally called Throop University after Amos Throop, the lumber magnate and universalist preacher who had founded it in 1891 with a board of trustees that included nine universalists. Its stated purpose was to provide, quote, a liberal and practical education 
which while thoroughly Christian, is to be absolutely non-sectarian, unquote. Now, this is Caltech I'm talking about. Five years later, Throop had founded the first Universalist parish of Pasadena, later called Throop Memorial Universalist Church, although its official name was, was retained for legal purposes. Norman Bridge and his wife, who had endowed Millikan's own physics laboratory, were prominent members of that congregation in the 1920s, that is, that other congregation. By backing a merger of his own Congregationalist church with a nearby Unitarian church, Millikan must have realized that he was following a Caltech tradition of support for liberal religion. He also emphasized a fact about leading American scientists of his own generation. According to a study of scientific eminence and church membership, that's the title of the article, published in 1931, the more liberal denominations provide many more eminent research men than do the less liberal ones. That's a direct quotation from the study. Unitarians, Congregationalists, Quakers, and Universalists were the top four groups, with Baptists, Lutherans, and Roman Catholics at the bottom. In describing these denominations as liberal, the authors noted, quote, relative freedom in interpreting biblical pronouncements and flexibility in reacting to questions such as fundamentalism, the virgin birth, etc. This describes Millikan's religious attitude perfectly. Millikan served as a trustee of the neighborhood church for the rest of his life and for many years as a deacon in which office he served the elements of communion. He was heavily invested in the church's identity as an independent non-doctrinal congregation with first-class preaching for the highly scientific university community. At a conference on church unity held at his own church in 1927, he spelled this out. I've usually emphasized the lack of conflict between science and religion, he said, and you see that quotation here. But there is an absolute clash between certain types of religious thinking and the fundamentals of scientific thinking. For science cannot exist without throwing its whole emphasis upon the attitude of open-minded search for truth and the spread of knowledge regardless of all consequences. Some churches, he said, are fundamentally opposed to that, that point of view, and their existence made complete union impossible. Would it perhaps be possible, he wondered, to unite a very considerable number of Protestant churches into union churches through the complete renunciation of the historical background which has made these churches sectarian, when the real reasons for these sectarianisms are generally recognized to have no further validity? Even this was not likely, for the simple reason, he said, that the churches, like the whole community, are still in need of a slow educational process. Nevertheless, he suggested what you see here, the formation of union churches, which renounce entirely the validity of sectarian differences, and in so doing, shake off largely the shackles of tradition and place religion upon a more idealistic basis than it has been on before, while waiting for the denominations to catch up. Now, religion was vitally important to Robert Millikan, and it has a prominent place in the four popular books that he wrote at the height of his fame between 1924 and 1932. In the introduction to his autobiography, he confessed that, quote, the best writing I have ever done, unquote, was found in Evolution in Science and Religion, published in 1927, his Terry Lectures from Yale. Science and Religion, 
were both essential for human well-being and progress, he argued in this book. Indeed, what he called the spirit of religion and the spirit of science were, for Millikan, the two supreme elements in human progress. Now, Millikan had already begun to articulate that view back in 1921, before he went to Caltech, when he spoke at the Smithsonian reception in honor of Marie Curie. Although he had spent the better part of an hour praising the advance of scientific knowledge, he ended the talk by explicitly denying that belief in the possibilities of scientific progress is the most important thing. He denied that. The most important thing in the world, he said, is a belief in the reality of moral and spiritual values. Now, this was no mere reference to humanly constructed cultural values. It is true that spiritual forces, such as brotherhood, love, pity, kindness, altruism, duty, conscience, and morality, as he spelled them out, could, he said it's true that they could not be measured. Yet, he said, they unquestionably stand for just as fundamental realities in the experience of all human beings as to words like matter, motion, speed, energy, weight, table, rock, etc., which are used in connection with the material qualities or attributes which belong to the world in which the physicist makes his measurements. Millikan's concept of God dovetailed perfectly with his understanding of these values. Materialism was for Millikan a cold and dead philosophy, as it was for all other Christians, whether fundamentalist or modernist. It seemed to him, quote, as obvious as breathing, that every man who was sufficiently in his senses to recognize his own inability to comprehend the problem of existence, to understand whence he himself came and whither he is going, must in the very admission of that ignorance and finiteness recognize the existence of a something, a power, a being in whom and because of whom he himself lives and moves and has his being. That power, that something, that existence, we call God. A few sentences later, he spoke of God as, quote, that which is behind the mystery of existence and that which gives meaning to it. I think you will not misunderstand me then when I say that I have never known a thinking man who did not believe in God. More specifically, Millikan identified the God of science as the spirit of rational order and of orderly development, the integrating factor in the world of atoms and of ether and of ideas and of duties and of intelligence. Materialism is surely not a sin of modern science. A very, very common statement, by the way, by state scientists in this period. Very common statement, that last sentence there. Einstein was well known for holding a similar view, and Millikan liked to point this out. God had a further significance for Millikan's theology of nature. In at least two important ways, God governed the universe entirely from within, as befitted the imminent God of the modernists. First, God was the benevolent providence working within the long process of evolution that culminated in humanity. As Millikan put it, quote, certainly no human brain was present when 50 million years ago it was decided, his italics, that puny little Eohippus was to evolve into a modern horse. 
or that a close relative of the chattering monkey should one day become Abraham Lincoln. Teleological interpretations of evolution were not uncommon among leading scientists at that time, and some would undoubtedly have agreed with Millikan's implicit injection of divine governance. And as for the soul, I'm going to have to cut a little here. You can see what he said about that. God's second prominent role in nature was cosmological. In the last decade of the 19th century, radioactivity revealed a world in which heavier atoms were decaying into lighter ones. The elements were breaking down. In the third decade of the 20th century, astrophysicists Arthur Eddington and James Jeans concluded that the sun's enormous energy could arise only from radioactive decay and from the complete destruction of protons, electrons, and the nuclei of heavy elements, producing in the process the type of radiation that Millikan himself had named cosmic rays. Now, if both of these things were true, then ultimately, as Millikan put it, all will be converted, matter will all be converted into radiation, that is, it will simply disappear. He realized this was the old heat death hypothesis, and he didn't like it. Modern theologians objected to this, he pointed out, on the grounds that it overthrows the doctrine of imminence and requires a return to the Middle Age assumption of a deus ex machina. In other words, a universe that is running down is often compared to a clock that God wound up initially and then left to itself. And the modernist God, quite frankly, was not in the business of winding clocks. But Millikan thought there was a way out. His own work on cosmic rays suggested to him that they originated not in the interiors of stars, as genes claimed, but in the opposite extremes of temperature and pressure found in interstellar and intergalactic space. Furthermore, Millikan believed he had proved that they formed when heavier, heavier atoms were built up, heavier nuclei were built up from protons and electrons, and not when the reverse took place. That led him to call cosmic rays one of the most famous statements, the birth cries of the infant atoms of helium, oxygen, and silicon. Thus, he presented an alternative picture of the universe in which atom building in space balanced the destruction of atoms and stars. And that led him to hold the view that the heat death, you know, he could be banished forever. And in his AAAS presidential address in 1930, he said that the hypothesis of atom building would allow the creator to be continually on his job. That's how he put it. Finally, for Millikan, the church had a vital role to play. The church remained the greatest social institution in the country, he said, and functioned as the great dynamo, which is largely responsible for pumping into human society the spirit of altruistic idealism. How could science help the church? especially Millikan believed, by giving us the notion of progress through our own efforts to improve the human condition by knowing and controlling nature. The idea that nature is at bottom benevolent, he said, is a contribution of science to religion and a powerful extension or modification of the idea that Jesus had seen so clearly and preached so persistently. Thus, for Millikan, the practical preaching of modern science and is the mo it is the most insistent and effective preacher in the world today, he said, is extraordinarily like the preaching of Jesus. Robert Millikan died in December 1953, December 1953, 
at the age of 85. And he was interred as a, quote, immortal, unquote, at Forest Lawn Memorial Court in Glendale, California. His ambition had always been to make a better world, and many thought that he had done precisely that, partly by his discoveries in fundamental physics, partly by the creation of a great research university, and partly by the ways in which he had defended human values in a scientific age. He was justly proud himself of all three, but he took the greatest satisfaction from the last. Thank you. And I regret that I've what, got one minute left for questions. That God constantly, constantly holds the operation of the universe, upholds that and runs it. A God who's not an initial starter of the universe, who didn't make the heavens and the earth, but who runs it. 